This conference is all about bringing together that powerful triumvirate, people, capital, and ideas. In 2015, the Paris Climate Accords set the target of limiting global warming to well below two degrees. To reduce the disastrous effects of climate change, we need a whole economy approach. Business, government, and finance working together, taking swift action to reduce emissions, supporting and championing the innovators in cleantech, promoting leadership that sees decarbonization as an opportunity, an opportunity for innovation, an opportunity for global collaboration, an opportunity to build a better world for the future generation. The people here today, the people driving this change. Welcome to Innovation Zero. So, so far today, we've talked about the future of mobility, the vision uh, for the future. We've talked about moving people in cities and regions. We've dug into the supply chains behind our transport systems. But one of the key opportunities in terms of transport, uh, uh, moving our transport systems to net zero is fleets. Fleet owners and operators have a chance to really understand their vehicle usages and their total costs of ownership. And that potentially means that uh, applying net zero or zero emission vehicles in certain uh, operations and certain activities could be potentially advantageous in terms of finances and also the green credentials. But these vehicles are new and they're different and they mean less familiarity and that gives concerns of risk. So there's operational considerations as well. So alongside that opportunity, fantastic opportunity, uh, potentially challenges. We've got some excellent experts on our panel today. Um, please do take the opportunity to ask them some questions through the Slido app on the screen. Um, and with that, I'm going to hand you over to our moderator today. It's Danielle Walsh, uh, co-founder and CEO of Clarity Earth. Um, great to meet you all. And I also believe this is the best room and we've got a great selection of speakers today. Um, a huge diverse. And we were just saying before that this is a pretty broad topic. It's the public and private sector engagement with suppliers and manufacturers to decarbonize our fleet, which could be anything. Um, we're going to try to keep on point. Uh, we're going to try to make it concrete and have a discussion that actually you can take something away from uh, from today's panel. So on the panel today, I have um, Mike Nikrani. Uh, he's the MD um, of e-mobility investments of VEV, which is fully owned by Vitol, has tons of experience when it comes to energy and energy trading. Um, we have uh, Ollie. Um, Ollie Boots is the Chief Commercial Officer of Octopus Electric Vehicles, which I think everyone in the room knows. Um, we have uh, Matthew Deer, who's Director of Better Environment and Transport and the Future Program and Projects Manager um, of Zero Emissions Fleet of the London uh, Fire Brigade, so bringing that public side through. Um, we have uh, Andrea Scrawlin, who is the Managing Director of Flickbus um, and also has a lot of experience previously in the shared and micro-mobility space. Um, and then finally, we have Louis uh, Rambol, who's the Group Strategy and Transformation uh, Director of Go Ahead Group. Um, so huge diversity, everything is on road transportation, uh, and we have a lot of questions to share. So I'm going to start off um, the panel today with um, with Mike. I'd like to start, we all know, and we've been speaking about this for a long time around the transition of road transportation. Mike, why is the transition not happening faster and as expected? Big question, I guess, right? Um, I, I, so I spent quite a lot of my life um, uh, in a, uh, about five, six years ago in China. And if you go to China and you look down, and my second visit to China um, was uh, to Shenzhen, and I went to China, and 
Um, I rocked up. The team picked me up. They started taking me around places. They uh, worked me very hard. And the first place they took me to was a bus depot. At this bus depot, I went to this bus depot. And they put me in a minibus in the bus depot. And um, they took me up and down this bus depot. So you think bus depot? It's pretty big. It's China. It's massive. It was 7,000 buses. And they were all electric. It was August 2018. And they'd had them running for nearly four years. Um, and I had to go up and down to the minibus to, to actually get around the bus depot. And it got me thinking quite a lot. And it it's frustrating for me a little bit, to be honest, right? I think we as a we as a group of individuals in Europe have not reached out to see what's available elsewhere because the energy transition in those in countries like that is working today, right? So China has electrified its bus fleet. They are doing it. And so what are the pieces that are not working here? Um, I think, well, the product, first of all, hasn't always been available, starting to become available. I think the financing aspect is enormous. If you think about the capex for a bus, uh, a diesel bus is, let's say, can be 120,000, an electric bus is 270 to 300 kind of stuff. It, that's if you get a low cost one, a 10 meter bus kind of stuff. So those fleets are struggling financially to do it. It's the capex spend up front, and then it's thought leadership. I don't think there is enough knowledge in the European landscape today that can say, we know how to do this. We've done this before, and these are the steps that you need to take to go do it. So I think there's a it, there's a piece of that. Um, it's an overused word, but ecosystem, it just hasn't existed. It, it's starting to exist, right? If you look around you, people are starting to fill in the gaps, right? But it hasn't existed. And that's what we're trying to do, right? So, so my organization is trying to put those pieces together. Um, it's not a zero-sum game. It's a win-win, right? You need the customer. You need the grid connect supply. You need the charging infrastructure. You need the OEM. Uh, you need the energy provision. And you need some support from government. So those are the pieces which I don't think are there yet fully in the pace that they need to be. So I'm hearing here both a knowledge base, but also then that engagement with the suppliers and partners. You picked up China directly, and obviously we know here that the innovations have stalled off also during COVID. Oli, you've just sort of recurrent of 5,000 of the BYD vehicles uh, from China. Do you want to talk about that in terms of how that went? And was it both just the partnership, but also the learnings, what you're bringing from China here into the UK? Yeah, it's a, a good follow on. Um, so I think the market, particularly for cars, will become quite interesting in uh, Western Europe and in the UK specifically. You've got, it's it's hard for the Chinese or impossible for the Chinese manufacturers to take their cars to the US um, because of the various restrictions that the US government have put on that. Um, but then you've got from the uh, from from the US coming over to Europe, obviously there's Tesla, uh, the hoover of electric cars that everyone knows. Um, but then you've got people like Fisker and others coming across. So yeah, we... Um, actually got the senior folks from BYD in tomorrow. We, we've done a tie-up with BYD for salary sacrifice. We can touch on what salary sacrifice is later, um, but made a commitment to them that we'll bring uh, 5,000 uh, EVs from BYD into the UK. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating space. And I think it will be a closely fought battle in the car arena in Western Europe from the kind of guys coming across from, from uh, the US, guys coming from China. And then, of course, there's a fair bit of European manufacturing happening as well. How that disturbs, disrupts the legacy manufacturers. So people who've got established uh, networks, people that have got things they need to support will be really fascinating. But we are we are excited. We want to, as Octopus, we want to play with all of the manufacturers. But um, I think these, well, we're already seeing a bit of MG. I think we'll see it with uh, BYD as well. It's going to start to bring down the cost of a, an electric vehicle, electric car, certainly, uh, and make that more accessible. Before I move on for you, Ollie, so congratulations on that. That's the vehicle. Um, I want to keep on the passenger vehicles here, though. In terms of the charging infrastructure that's needed, how have you overcome that part of it? So 
Um, as I said, most of what we do is helping employees of companies switch into salary sacrifice. So as part of that, we include a, a home charger. So they get a charger at home. And for most of those people, so 80% of people take a home charger. So they've got a driveway. Um, and it still is, however we look at it, it still is easier to charge your car and most cost effective to charge a car or van at home. Um, so on an overnight smart tariff, that's the cheapest way of charging up your car. And a lot of EV drivers are still, well, a lot of EV drivers will charge at home. In terms of the charging structure, it's always the next same question. So what do I do out of home if I'm on a long journey? Um, and it's hit and miss. There are times when it's brilliant. I went to Harrogate last Friday uh, in my EV. So that I live in Surrey. That's about a 500 mile round trip. Um, and actually, it was quite good. Uh, I charged uh, um, other services and then there was a destination charge when I got there. Um, and then I found another rapid charger. But you need the you need a good app. And sometimes there's a bit of luck there. If you turn up, and actually on the way home, I did have to wait 15 minutes um, to get onto a charger. So there are times when you've got to wait or the charger doesn't work. So investment in charging and hour of home charging is still needed. I wouldn't say it's broken, um, but there's definitely more investment than we need uh, to grow that hour of home charging infrastructure. So I'm hearing here, this on the passenger side, um, okay, we've sold for it at home. Obviously with BID itself also, there's huge innovations here on the battery side. Truly tried to get that range anxiety down. We could also shift to the behavioral side. I think we'll come back to that a bit later. Um, but Matthew, if I'm moving, keeping on topic of charging infrastructure, I'm moving here in terms of uh, the public side of things, so public transportation, from your prior role and also your engagement currently now with customers, can you share a bit more around the different use cases here on when it comes to charging infrastructure? Yeah, so both both from the vehicle side and the infrastructure side, I think what we need to be understanding for specialist fleets and emergency fleets is it's a different use case and we have different requirements. So I think going back to your your first question, why it's been slower, there's been there's been a, a, a fixation, a, a more of a focus on the passenger cars and the buses, for example. And there needs to be recognition that actually these fleets are different and they are special and they're more demanding. Um from from the vehicle side, uh, London Fire Brigade and other fire services are incredibly demanding. They, they have to go fast distances and then they have to do jobs that vehicles aren't really invented to do. They have to do pumping potentially for four hours, five hours maximum. So that's that's a challenge that we need to be overcoming and talk about that in, in more detail later. In terms of the infrastructure side, again, it's not always looked a bit jealously at the bus, the bus, the bus suppliers in terms of the fact that it's one, they've got the money and the attention um, but also it's it's one or two depots. So from a fire, well, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's more than one or two depots. Um, London Fire Brigade has 102 fire stations. Uh, Essex has 50. Avon has, has 50 to, to 60. I could go on. And that's going to create a very different use case demand and a challenge for us. So it's, it's more of a domestic challenge. We've only got like three heavy vehicles at our fire stations. But... They're, they're demanding and power enough that we have to do the grid connections and the grid reinforcements and that investment. And then we've got to multiply that by 102. So it's a, it's a real challenge. And I think what I'm keen to be doing in terms of working with specialist fleets and 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 and, and the buses and the other ones is, is really highlighting that to people. It's not just, you know, a one-size-fits-all approach. Matthew, but this is, um, we're saving lives here. Uh, we're moving from, you know, if I'm charging at home and I may run late to work, I mean, it's, Hopefully, uh, I'm not going to be uh, lifting anyone, but this is emergency services. Are you seeing any pushback when it comes to that sector? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, Pete, uh, 
people don't necessarily like change and i think that's a bigger point that we need to we need to accept change and embrace it um you know i think there's almost a hope that you know government changes its mind on some of this point and i think what doesn't help from a fire service or, or, or police or ambulance perspective is that typical silo culture you know we're getting the innovation driven by dft oziv and so on and home office and other other kind of uh, organizations are fixated on delivering services now and achieving that i think what where we need to go to and what beat is doing is that you know looking at that strategic approach looking at the needs looking under really understanding their requirements and bringing the two sides together i think this i think one final challenge is going back to my london fire brigade days is you know we would talk about with the end users what do you need to do we need to save lives we need to go and things but we'd always come back to the worst case examples that well what happens if we need to take vehicles up on blue light to carlisle uh you know they want a mercedes sprinter style ev vehicle and they want to get there in in two hours it's like well let's be realistic is you know show me show me a diesel or petrol vehicle that does that in the first place and show me the last time you did it and i think you know we'll get onto data later on but i think you know looking at data to really understand that use case and the drive cycles and the demands is really important sure we'll definitely come back to the data side andreas different use case we've only been in and out and um uh into the cities um, last mile, uh, very short distances, having to stop. With this, uh, when you're in the, the long distance here, how are you actually tackling this? I would love to also pick up on the recent expansion to the US and the different restrictions there between the US and the UK. Yes. Thank you. First of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, a quick introduction to Flixbus as well. Our vision statement is to provide smart and green transportation to everyone everywhere. This has allowed us to build globally the largest long-distance mobility platform. It's also, we have over 5,000 coaches on the road uh, globally. So it, it's a truly large platform that, that we built during this time. We also have a focus on sustainability. It's part of our DNA. And uh, you can see that coach, the UK government has shared numbers where coach has 25% less emission than trains, for example. So it is really a sustainable way of traveling uh, long uh, for long distance. Uh, then if you're comparing the European market and, and the American market, um, European has obviously progressed further and it's a big focus here. And we address this through a strategy where we want to avoid, reduce, engage and offset. And the avoid element is coach travel already today is the most sustainable way of travel. Reduce, we're working with manufacturers in terms of developing new technologies, the electric coaches, hydrogen coaches, and, um, and biogas as well. And that is enabled through partnerships that we have with different manufacturers, ZF to develop hydrogen vehicles. We have a partnership with uh, Daimler to develop electric vehicles uh, and also with Shell to create sustainable um, uh, fuels. Uh, and then the last, we also allow passengers to to offset their, their carbon footprint. So I think uh, it, it comes back to what some of the speakers said before, that there's really an, an ecosystem and a network that has to be created in order to deliver this in a good way. Thank you. So really the engagement here on the private side, directly with the auto manufacturers and the energy companies to come forward. Um, 
Louis, we're going more now in terms of the partnership of um, the government. So how are you actually engaging with local authorities? Because the big thing here is making this commercially viable to actually transition uh, to either electric or other forms of energy. Um, how is that going? So um, the GoEd Group, I'm not sure if you know, uh, it's a public transport business. So not like Flexbus, we're not working on the long distance, but more on the short distance. So all the commuting you can have on the buses or, or on the rail. So um, we are present in seven countries. And here in the UK, we are operating 6,000 buses. So it's a bit smaller than one Chinese depot. Um, we are clearly transitioning to, to zero emission and we clearly are working strongly with the government um, to do so. I think to come back also to your first question or, or why uh, it's not fast enough, uh, I think it's because we have three issues. Um, the first one is around the technology of the vehicles. Um, I mean, zero emission buses are existing, uh, it's clear, um, but at the moment the range and the autonomy of the battery it's um, more or less it's covering 150 miles, uh, which is actually for us only, let's say, 60% of all our activity. So we have a solution, technical solution for 60%. For the very long distance, it's only a very small part of my business. Um, this solution existing on the market is hydrogen, uh, which is still very expensive. So it's not ideal. And for everything, which is, I would say, medium distance, we have nothing at the moment. So technology is the first problem. Second one is infrastructure. Some of the speakers mentioned that. Clearly, um, here we need more support from the government to accelerate the transition, uh, to have the right uh, permission to, uh, to connect to the grid. Um, just to give you one example, we have some hydrogen buses in the country. We have only five people working in the uh, British administration to certify us. It's taking ages. So if we want to accelerate, we need just more people, more experts in the government also to uh, uh, give us the right certification to move forward. And the last topic, and I'm sure we'll come back to that, is of course uh, business case. So not only the financing part, I think money is here, but we need to reimburse uh, our shareholders, we need to reimburse our debt holders, and so we need to have business case, which is not straightforward today. And this is what we are working on, notably with the government. Amazing. Thank you. Really natural path into back into Mike here in terms of this conundrum we're having with, even though we all know that the, the long-term transitioning of operating low-carbon fleet, I use that word and not just electric fleet, is going to be lower. How do we face this upfront higher capex? Yes, I think, um, I guess just building on a lot of this, because Louise, your point, I think the 60%, right? I guess one of the things that we try quite often, we think about the perfect solution, and I think the perfect solution will take time to get to, right? But there's a lot we can do today on the solution that exists. So for the, for the fleet that does matter, and we'll talk about it in data, right? But we do a lot of an analysis of the various fleets that we go meet, right? And we understand from their usage patterns, right, um, what their capabilities are. And then we identify the ones that can versus the ones that can't. And I think that's it's important to start with the ones where the technology exists today and where it can. Um, I, interesting dynamic, right? So emerging markets have managed to make the, the total cost of ownership stack work, right? Whereas we're struggling here in Europe, which is an interesting dynamic. So if you think... Um, uh, we own and run a, a, a Columbia electric bus depot. Um, it's 495 buses, give or take a little bit. They're all electric. Uh, they go out at 5 a.m. They return at 11 p.m. They do just under 200 kilometers per day. 
um, and the but it's a 15 year life cycle so we had to agree a 15 year life cycle for the financing of those buses and the depot and the government had to step up and say yes i agree with you this is a 15 year life cycle not a seven year operation or a five year operation but this is what i meant by the ecosystem right you need the governmental partners who issue these franchises to buy into it then you also need to change the operator the operator needs to think about this differently yeah they can't think about this in the same traditional way that they operate their traditional vehicle fleet and this is something that fleets are going to struggle with. If you do that and you do it in a certain way, that financing problem becomes, I think, in the end, a infrastructure financing problem. And at that point, there is lots of capital available to deploy, right? But you need those other pieces to plug in. So, and I use the example, we've financed these, uh, these uh, buses in Colombia. We're doing the same in a couple of cities in Africa, and we're starting to do the same here in, in the UK. So that model, which is a longer life cycle of the vehicle, a total cost of ownership um, uh, based on our projection for future energy consumption versus diesel and gasoline and et cetera versus the EV. And you can put a package together that the infrastructure finance guys will actually be interested in. They'll say, okay, well, I will take my share of the risk in this space. And I think that's one way. You're going to see more of that. Uh, we plan to do lots more of that ourselves, right? With partners such as yourselves, right? Where we'll take our share of the risk. But you need a few people. This is why it's so hard, right? It's not, I do a deal with Ollie and, and I'm done, right? It's I got to do a deal with seven or eight different competing thoughts. And then I've got to change the way, you know, uh, Matthew says this all the time, right? He says, you've got to change the way you think about the operation. Yeah, you can't just do what you did, which is guy rocks up, jumps in, drives, right? You've got to think a little bit. You've got to have a digital platform that tells you where you can do it. You've got to have a booking system, all that kind of stuff. But I think the finance is there. That's the, that's the important part, I'd say, Daniel. I think the finance is there. Infrastructure funds have tons of cash to deploy. They just don't have the right structure to deploy it in right now. Keeping on that, because I think this is a big bottleneck, you started that out by saying that the in Colombia, the public, so the government came through yeah. and realized they need to put the funding in, and then the private side came. No, no, they didn't fund it, uh, Daniel. So what they did okay. is they agreed to cut the, the traditional bus operator franchise, which Louis will know much more than I ever do, so apologies for... Uh, but, you know, the original contract is a five-year contract with that franchisee. Well, if the bus pays back over 15 years, okay. not five years, how do you... Why would I buy the bus? I'm saying, you know, I buy the bus, and then next year, you know, Andres kicks me out. I can't do that, right? So we have to separate the bus ownership from the bus operator... Okay. And the government said, I agree that we'll be a 15-year contract. Well, you will supply the buses and the charging infrastructure. And then I go, great, I, I'm willing to fund that. Yeah, Because I now have my life cycle of 15 years and I can offer a price now to, to Louis to say, this is the price per mile that it will cost you for the next 15-year uh, time frame. So it's structuring deals in a way that we're reducing the risk for the private side to come through. Correct. Yeah, it's it's public private it's PFI, right? So think about it. But it's but it's not just it's a it, but it is a commercial decision, right? The government has not provided a subsidy, right? This whole uh, whether we like it or not, the European landscape is addicted to government subsidies because they haven't given enough. There isn't enough, mm. right? But it's a public body social service, and it's not working today. But some of the emerging markets are breaking that, right? Really smartly. So I'd like to just hop quickly and then back to you, um, Matthew. Just going back to that data point that you raised earlier. How can we use data then to actually structure these new uh, deals here in the UK using data to also reduce the risk for, for the infrastructure banks? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it goes back to Mike's point about understanding what these vehicles do and applying that for a cost per mile basis in terms of the use. But before we get to that point, we need to get the data. <laughs> we, we, we need to understand what the vehicles are doing, 
and also what the stations are doing or, or, or other depots, bus depots and so on. So, you know, telematics is, is obviously a well understood kind of technology now and a benefit. But actually, if you look at a lot of fleets out there, especially the smaller ones and the public ones and, and the small, small ones that have tight finances, it's, it's a big investment. And we can talk about the cost benefit uh, benefits of doing that. But it's a real it's a real challenge when we're looking at that and when we've got kind of priorities and we've got firefighters going on strike. It's it's a really hard thing to do. So we ideally let's get telematics on all our fleets, let's understanding what the vehicles are doing, and then we can get to that capital cost and the values of the fleets and, and, and going electric for the, the infrastructure and the buses and the, the, the fire fire engines. Um if we can't afford that, which we've been in that position, let's get the data right. Um, you know, when, when I led London Fire Brigade's decarbonisation strategy, it goes back to exactly Mike's point is about, well, what are they actually doing? And what, what let's look at the data and do it. There was, in the end, there was about 12 to 15 million data points that we looked at. Three major data sets, and none, none of them actually worked with each other. They People called the stations different code names, called the, called the, the, the fire stations and the fire engines different codes. There'd be missing data. It would rely on human error to be doing it. It was, it wasn't pretty. So yeah, we 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 need to get those basics right in terms of getting that data right. And it's the same side on the fire stations and depots as well. Is we need to understand um, again the basics is what what is the electricity con- consumption at the moment from fire stations or all the bus depots, and what's the available connections at the moment from the DNO side in terms of the local uh, substations? Is is that availability? And fire, fire services, ambulance services, and smaller ones rather than the, 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 the bigger fleets don't necessarily know this. So we really need to be uncovering that and be using that data. Once we've got it, we can do the smart things. We can put the value on things. We can then look and talk about well, how are we going to structure our replacement programs? How are we going to do that in the phased approach where the, the most, the easiest vehicles that we can swap over now, we could do that. But we, we can't do any of that without the, the, the data. So I'm hoping, hoping you solve all our problems, Daniel. <laughs> so, I mean, we can speak about data for the whole panel. We won't. And I think this is a really natural uh, coming back here to, to you, Ollie, because you will have that full visibility. So when it comes here, what I'm hearing really is, um, I mean, I think you have two issues, which is the supply of data, the order of the data, i.e. cleaning it, and then the combining of that data, which is a, a wonderful example of partnerships with suppliers to actually gather that together and come through, the bringing that thread together. I think the three data sets we're needing here to give that full picture is mobility. We mentioned telematics. You have the connected vehicle, telematics, tachographs, the app itself. And then you can also now bring in public data sets like satellite imagery to actually see the the average movement of vehicles. We're very aware of mobility data. The second thing, though, when it comes to transitioning or getting emissions intensity is then coming in around what is the current energy supply in my location? And what is my average trip movement from A to B to see what actually requirements I need in energy, types of energy, and then the infrastructure in place. That's a a whole different supplier and a whole different data set that we never needed to blend together. Now we do. And obviously the third one is then operations around weight, the context of whether we are moving around, Ollie, I've touched on that in a second, for personal reasons or employee reasons. That's a context of moving. And then obviously going to the public uh, transportation side, what what are you replacing? So if you did do a, a new line, am I then avoiding a taxi? Can I get to a train station? Are you facilitating that journey, the reduction of emissions there to then facilitate a longer journey path? And then obviously the logistics is the weight. 
temperature and every other capacity. So Ollie, just touching on you there then, because obviously you're covering here and it's a bit of a mix between that CapEx side and also the data conundrum. How are you pulling that data together and also then using it to do a, a risk analysis to front everything and then and then apply that out to full service for the customer? Yeah, sure. So um, in terms of, so I guess a very brief intro to, uh, we, I didn't intro the, the business. So I, uh, one of the directors of Oxford Electric Vehicles, we are part of the Oxford Energy Group, um, which most people are aware of. We're a, we're a young startup. We're a few years in um, and have lots of ideas about how, how we're going to do this. Mo as I said earlier, most of our growth today comes from our salary sacrifice proposition. Uh, so that is to help employees make the switch into an EV. And we have just coming up to 10,000 vehicles on that from our vehicles on the road and uh, cars we've got in the order bank today. The, we also have a, about five 600 cars in our fleet proposition and a, few, a handful of vans as well that sit in there. Um, and that I think it's how do we help those customers make the, the switch? It does often come back to data. And the second point I think which you raised earlier on, Matthew, is kind of hearts and minds. So you can almost make the case with as much data as you want, but if you haven't kind of got the hearts and minds and you're not going to take those people on that journey in terms of making the switch as well. Uh, so there's a great phrase that people uh, decide irrationally or emotionally and they backfill rationally. So they make their decision with the heart uh, and then they'll backfill it with a find some data points. That's definitely what I do at home with my wife. Let's <laughs> try. I mean, I'm going to do this, but I'll try and find some reason to make it work. But it applies in the workplace too. And it applies exactly here. So in terms of how to, what data for our fleet customers, we particularly will look at, um, so we've got a couple of courier fleets um, who primarily are working in, in city areas. Um, but it's how, what can we take from there? It's similar. It, it's no different really in public versus private sector, but what are they using the vehicle for? What are they carrying? How far are they going each day? Uh, and how, how far are they from a, from a charge point or do they need to charge in that day? Um, so to your question, actually, you asked me on about kind of charging points today. I think that the needs of that are going to change very rapidly as vehicle tech changes as well. So at the moment today, you're, you'll see a 30, 50, if you're lucky, maybe a hundred kilowatt charger, a kind of at roadside. As that grows and a vehicle can take a much quicker charge, the need for as many public chargers will come down because you don't need, you're not sat there for as long. You might sit there for five minutes, 10 minutes, and your car's back from 20% to 80% or your, your light commercial. Maybe a bit more difficult when you get into heavies, um, but that tech is that tech is coming. Like we're a few years away from that. Like this, before twenty thirty, we're, we're, we're very close to that. So last two questions. But I think being able to, it does come down to use cases and how that fleet is using its vehicle. But also, how do we take the employees on the journey? So how do we the drivers of those vehicles? I guess in your case, Matthew, firefighters. What what are they using it for? Or bus drivers, what are they using it for? And how can we actually make the case and take those people with us, not say, this is what we're doing and it's done and you have no input on that. So it's, it's both of those. So are you finding then that uh, certain companies are holding back and waiting for the innovations to be there before they go ahead? I think there's two different things. So on the for cars, and I'm conscious a lot of today's isn't about cars, but in terms of passenger vehicles, um, in a traditional company car, we're now into very much early mass adoption or even mass adoption in the company car space. And a lot of that is driven by government incentives. So um, sure, the audience in the room, but benefit in kind is the tax you pay on having a company car. It is much more advantageous at the moment for an EV than for an ICE car, an internal combustion engine car. So you've got a puller then. There's, I guess there's the reasons of it. it's cheaper, 
for me, it's fun to drive. And of course, it's the, it's the right thing to do for the environment. So in the company car space, actually, it's quite easy. You don't need to force that. It's, it's a logical and an emotional decision that's the right thing. Where it's a, uh, a business use fleet, so that could be a, a, and in my previous roles, I've done lots of work in light commercial vehicle fleets, both public and private sector, and being able to make the case of why that vehicle needs to go over to an EV, you'll have all sorts of different people in their adoption curve of, yes, I want that EV and I want it now, versus people who've read a load of scary headlines and the car park's going to fall in and all sorts of other stuff if we park an electric vehicle in there. So it's, it's both. We get people that are pulling and people that are pushing to go into the, uh, an electric vehicle fleet. But can I, can I add to that? Just think, I think, if you think of the fleet space, just Ollie, just, just for a second now, if I think about a number of companies have said that they'll be net zero by 2030, all right? So simple maths, right? 72 months, if you exclude this year. 72 months, you've got 6,000 vehicles, 72 months. Mm. Just for a moment, right? And what I feel is happening is that I look at it as the marathon, right? You know the line, there's the ribbon here and everybody's queuing up to the ribbon. And they're all looking over to the left, looking to the right. And there's a lot of people behind you that are pushing you a little <laughs> bit kind of stuff. But that ribbon on fleets is really difficult, right? Because I, I sit there thinking that decision. And at some pace, that dam will break. But the bigger issue, then it's going to flip to the capacity won't be there. And there's something that the companies like myself, other large companies need to take on board, which is unless you're going to give up on your 2030 ambition, you actually don't have a lot of time to fix this. So if you use vehicles that last, I mean, company car fleets are typically three years, I guess, Ollie. But if you think about vans that might last six or seven years, you think about buses that last even more, you think about trucks that have two, three use cases. Actually, there are today quotes going out from large companies asking for a diesel vehicle. That vehicle will blow way past 2030. So there's a disconnect today. And, and I think we need, we as, uh, let's, I hate to overuse word, maybe thought leaders in this space need to start talking about the fact there is 72 months left if you start from Jan the 1st, 2024. And that is not a long period of time. And the supply constraints that are going to be upon you if we don't start to spread that burden out mean that 2030 won't happen. And I think uh, all of us want to aim for the 1.5 degree target, right? That's what kind of it, right? That's what I want to achieve, right? We're not going to hit it. And that's something we've got to take on board ourselves as company owners and people who have decisions to make. Uh, because if we don't start using the data and start doing stuff now, every diesel vehicle we buy, every gasoline vehicle we buy, right, will still be here in 2030. All right. One of the points you made before that also, so one, um, are we all, and I think we can touch out of this one when we're doing this, sensing this sense of urgency? Mm. Are we? I mean... Is it, do we do we really reflect on that the the sense of that we need to do this now and are we feeling a bit nervous every day? Um, I think it's a prominent conversation, but is there action to follow? So one of the points you mentioned earlier, Mike, was around um, in Columbia you had a contract on the public side. Um, Louis, coming back to you in terms of then public transportation for both supply of the vehicles and beyond, are you seeing these contracts come and are they clear to you? to allow you to go ahead in that urgent manner? So in terms of, of contracts, there are many different types of contracts to uh, allow uh, um, basically finance people to put money on the table, many different ways to manage residual value of vehicles, etc. So uh, it can work. But at the end, uh, we are uh, providing public transport either to, uh, to passengers uh, or to uh, local authorities and uh, zero emission vehicles are not free. So when you have a 
CapEx, which are more or less two times more expensive than uh, diesel vehicles, uh, you need to, someone needs to pay at the end. So we will reduce our cost. Uh, we are working to reduce our OPEX, but even though um, we, uh, people will need to pay at the end, will it be uh, public authorities? And here in London, clearly, the transport, transport from London is clearly very active and is putting money on the table to accelerate, and they have a clear sense of urgency. Uh, but then on the commercial business, uh, all of us uh, who are traveling, who are using um, uh, mobility means, we need to be conscious that it's not free and we need to pay a bit more, not dramatically more, because as operators, we are doing our homework to reduce our cost, but it's not free and the sense of urgency needs to, to be more here, I think, definitely. Thank you. Um, I'm coming out to the audience already and it's a small audience, uh, some really cool questions. Um, Andreas, earlier you actually, uh, rightly so, just moved us from just electric into hydrogen and biofuels. Um, what role do you think biofuels plays in this transition? Really appreciate that question because I wanted to kind of build a bit on what you were saying before as well. But I think from the long distance perspective, we are still in the technology solution stage where I think on, on the uh, public transportation and cars, electric is showing that that can really be a solution for, for the future. Whereas in long distance, we don't have that yet. We're working with vehicle manufacturers. We have several partnerships. And that's why it's so important also from our perspective to focus on the journey that we will be on the next 10 years and avoid the impact that we have during that journey. Uh, and that's why we are using Euro 6 vehicles, which have the lowest uh, impact. Um, so that's, uh, I think, kind of the, the start of that journey. Which then obviously comes back to not waiting until the innovation is there, but then obviously not pausing until it's, it's making different inroads. In yeah. And then you can make the assessment down the line around better batteries that can do these long distances. And that's where okay. we also want to partner with the government to uh, give the right incentives for passengers to make the right choices. Because as of today, I mean, no one is going to end long distance travel to give you an idea of the volumes that we are generating, we're traveling billions of kilometers every year. So if we can make the right choices already today and not wait five, 10 years until the final solutions are in place, that that's going already to be an important step uh, on the right direction. And that's, for example, we think in, in the UK specifically, we need to have a level playing field between coach and train where coaches today being considered in terms of fuel duty at the same levels as cars. Whereas we think there's an opportunity there to bring that down to train levels that are paying 80% lower fuel duties and then kind of uh, incentivizing passengers to, to make the right choices. We're aware that energy price is a bit of a constraint here in the UK versus the European Union. Yeah. Um, Mike, earlier, um, coming back to your point, it is probably a question for you that came through is uh, the depot-based fleets and how this is having a big uh, impact on the, the grid mm -hmm. and more energy needed. The collaborations are you seeing here with fleets and energy providers, are you seeing it strong? Is it open? I think it needs to be stronger, Daniela. I'd say I don't think it's uh, anywhere near strong enough. I think the expertise on what's required to do grid upgrade is quite limited. And I think that capacity is going to be even tighter over time if you just think about the millions of connections that need to occur. So you're going to see a mad rush on the 31st of December 2029, uh, you know, at this pace, right, if you think about it. But fundamentally, I think the 
the big thing for me, if you think about why why are we interested beyond the the purpose mission, guide, you only really get scale when it makes sense commercially, right? A customer has to be willing to pay for it. Somebody has to be willing to finance it. A provider needs to earn a living in order to provide it, right? That's how the the world goes does anything at mass adoption. Energy is going to be the biggest cost part of cost a mile, right? In our data, depending on the type of fleets there are, and 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 I'm sure some of the guys here, you talk about how much uh, fuel we use when we run a fire truck, as an example, Matthew. Um, uh, but if you think it's going to, it's it, that's at least forty percent of the cost per mile, and actually, when you think out to the future, it's going to become closer to sixty to seventy percent, right? So when you look at a life cycle of a fleet vehicle. The majority of it is going to be in the energy portion when you map it out. We think about where costs are today, but think about the long-term trend as such, right? Because you've got to pay off. There's, I think Goldman Sachs, something like $1.3 trillion of CapEx investment needs to go into the grid upgrades for Western for the Western world. I mean, just think that's between now and 2029 and 30, right? That has to be recovered somehow. That's going to be recovered in the energy price fundamentally, longer term, guys, right? So that problem statement is massive. People don't. People have got this impression that you can do things at the last minute quickly, and that'll be easy. It's not easy. It's complex. There's a lot of stuff that needs to happen, right? There's a lot of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that need to come together, and that that piece is not well understood. I think there's a perception I can wait, and I think fleets that when they find it, they're going to end up with vehicle supply because I think the vehicle industry will do its job, right? They were they've done a lot of investment trucks, buses, vans across multi energy streets. You talk to the senior leaders at the OEMs. I'm talking to the CEOs of the OEMs all the time. They are they've invested their capital. They're going to do it. The problem statement will come when somebody's bought the vehicle and thinks, ah, wh where do I go next? Right? That energy system piece. And so the energy partners need to stand up because when people think of an energy partner, and I used to work for BP for some time, guys, right? We think of infrastructure in the way that Ollie described it, which is a charger on the road somewhere, and that's absolutely vital and necessary. But now just think about the volume of charging that needs to happen at depot. I'll give you one example. If you're a large logistics company in the UK today, and you can name any of them, they spend something like 40 to 80 million pounds on diesel fuel per year. They spend 20,000 pounds per month on their energy bill because it's the depot. That shift of 20,000 to the 40 million or the 60 million is going to happen, right? That's i.e. they're going to start to spend 60, 70, 80 million yeah, pounds a year on energy in terms of electrons. That's to pay for all of the grid upgrade connect. And I don't think that problem statement is well understood today. I don't think there's a clarity there, right? And I think the grid upgrade connect will probably be the, the biggest shortfall. And I expect it's starting to happen right now. You're going to see lead times of years, not even months. Take a step back here. I mean, the, you mentioned 1.3 trillion to, in terms of the energy grid. We're spending 1 trillion a year in the transition of road transportation a year. It's, it's huge. Um, Matthew, you were going to come in here with a... Yeah, I just wanted to add in to, to, to Mike's point in terms of, you know, why why we... You know, we're kicking decisions down the curb, essentially, aren't we? And we're doing that because of risk and fear of the unknown. And, and public and private, when the people at the top, the decision makers, <laughs> are scared of making the wrong decision. It's, it's, the, the buck lies with them. And there's bold decisions that need to be made. Um, and again, they're, they're, they're hoping that there'll be a quick fix. There'll be a technology that will be completely the same as what there is right now in terms of delivering the diesel and, or petrol technologies. Um, we, we need to be honest and we need to accept certain truths about te this technology is different. We need to move, move away from the fixation of 
well, what is the range and when is the range going to be comparable with, with a diesel vehicle? We need to accept there are going to be capital cost increase for the vehicles, which as Mike said, is actually the easier bit. It's the new cost for the infrastructure that we have to find more money. But do we, we need to talk about this now because otherwise it's the, the bigger risk is the risk of diesel obsolescence. So we're going to be forced into be doing this and, and we can't buy a diesel vehicle. Or if you can, you can get one just, just in time, maybe two years in time. But actually, well, where's the maintenance coming from? Where's the parts? Where's the servicing and so on? It's not just the vehicles, it's not just the infrastructure. We also need to be preparing what our training looks like, what our health and safety, what the protocols are like in terms of the measuring the risk. And from a fire perspective, talking about battery vehicles in London makes makes operational people very nervous. So we 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 and I think the final point I'd like to make in terms of overcoming the risk more, not just from an organization organization perspective, from a community perspective, is let's have more conversations like this. And let's let's share some information going not not the data side, but in terms of information and intelligence, in terms of what these vehicles are doing and what we need to do. So one good example is well, what, how long do batteries? Uh, what's what's the battery life like? What's the impacts of degradation due to demanding performances? Seasonality in terms of the impacts on these things. These are going to be the real real differences and going to have a real impact on what the life of our vehicles do. And I'm sure from the bus industry, there's there's a lot of really intelligent learning that we could benefit, we all could benefit from. I think the other point in terms of sharing learning is, you know, to call on the government and DNOs to understand, to help us understand what the future of the grid looks like. So we need to understand, you know, where the pinch points are, what's going to happen in terms of, you know, if a fire station or a bus depot needs to upgrade. And, and actually, do we need to be looking at the alternatives, the, the microgrids, the vehicle to X and, and things like that? But we can't necessarily do that on the own, on our own. We need access to not just finances, information and expertise. I think we'll bring you back here as well. I mean, this it's um, always difficult to come out with concrete action points when the panel discussion is so broad. And we've come back here to the point around innovations. Uh, I was involved in my last hat of Better Place 10 years ago, which came up yesterday in, uh, in Israel. Um, there can be different innovations when it comes to charging, battery, different energy sources. And obviously then in the financing itself, we've mentioned earlier that the capital is there, but it's just having the right structure to actually then fill in. What it sounds like here is going to have uh, the formation of a discussion group that we can then invite the public side to come in who should have formed it. And then some of you in the audience can come in and maybe uh, contribute where we can actually bring some actions, a discussion to actions, as I say. Andreas, you wanted to come in a bit earlier? No, I thought. No, you to... But uh, I'm, I'm happy to build on what we were discussing before in terms of the um, different uh, solutions for, for long distance transport. And um, uh, we were talking about hydrogen and uh, biogas. And with hydrogen, we have a partnership with ZF that's uh, going to deliver a hydrogen vehicle by 2024. Similarly, we're working with uh, Shell for biogas, and, and we're now working with uh, another vehicle manufacturer to have a fleet coming out uh, in, in the Nordics to, to be running this. But I think also what is important to add to that question is that it's not just about being able to run point to point with a certain technology, but it's also then looking at all the operational consideration that you need to have in order to scale a certain technology. The way that we approach it is that we first, we split it into three steps. And, and the first one is to just prove the technology that we can go from point A to point B. Then it's about bringing it into a fleet so that we're able to do it within a, a line or a region and, and maybe run 15 to 20 vehicles. 
but then you have all the maintenance considerations, the, the network planning and how do we timetable the services. And then the last and third step is, can we actually scale it? And it, does it have a business case that, that can actually deliver on it on, on a long term? So it is a really complex topic. It's not just about getting the vehicle and, and the technology to solve kind of the, the first leg, but it's then also scaling it, which is then a five to 10 year journey probably. One of the questions that came from, uh, thank you. One of the questions that came from uh, the audience is an interesting one, and it could be answered by Oli Oluri, I think all of you, but specifically it's coming here. Um, we've focused a lot on this panel around innovations to transition on infrastructure, on financing, but then we also touched a little bit around the behavioral side, whether it's the limbic brain followed by the neocortex on the logical side. Um, I will start with Louis and whether you're making any assessments here on that behavioral and it's not just about the transitioning, but not doing the trip in the first place or going from a single man or woman in a vehicle into public transportation. Are you looking at this side of things? I mean, definitely. Huh? Um, if you look in this country, at our CO2 invoice, one third of the CO2 emissions are coming from the whole mobility. And uh, so it's massive. And among that, the, the big share is uh, cars. Each one of us, when we are using our cars alone, we are consuming a hell of CO2. Uh, CO2. And the, the, the first and the, the most uh, sensible way to, to transition to a low, low carbon world is to move to public transport, to coaches, to rail, uh, where already now, with the current technology, even diesel-based, it's much more, much more efficient in terms of CO2. So right now, stop your car, use public transport, use coaches, and you will have a huge impact directly now. You might change your behavior, how you think, how you, you, you travel, but it's directly something that we can do today. And on top, we are doing our job to transition our fleet to a much more zero emission tomorrow. Please, thank if you. I can add and fully agree with, with it. We can do something today. We can avoid in, in our parlance. And, and I think it's a great step. Then we have direct experience from, I think, exactly this question in giving passengers the opportunity to offset their carbon footprint from, from the trip. And we see that People do that, and since 2015, we have offset 100,000 tons of CO2 emissions and corresponds to almost 4 billion kilometers. So it's happening, but that in itself is obviously not going to, to solve the, the bigger topic. What we've also done is we've done research of our customer base globally in terms of how is their decision-making when they choose to travel and the, who the provider becomes. And what we see is, and, and I think it's, it's been reflected in, in other researches as well, is that people care about sustainable travel. They want to be associated with a green solution. The challenge is that people are not prepared to pay more for it. So they say, yes, I want to travel sustainably. No, I will not pay more for it. And then we come back to the importance of the business case and making sure that it's something that's sustainable. Uh, and, and we are committed to this because we think it's the right thing to do, but then it takes everyone to come together and being able to deliver on it. And I'm not a speaker, but I, I will just flirt with the idea of that we're now using carbon credits as opposed to offset to actually uh, quantify the reduction of a change in behavior or a prevention through infrastructure. And that upfront cover the cost of capital or also reward people from that transitioning 
into public or, or low carbon. Um, so there are some innovative uh, solutions out there on the finance and coming down. Um, I think I'm coming back to, if I come, I come this morning from Israel where you can go from 15 kilometers uh, quicker in a bike than you can in a single car uh, because there's no routes on the road. So we always complain in the UK that we need to do more, but actually we're doing a lot in the UK and broadly in Europe on opening those pathways. I think for both of you, are you seeing that you're also with government, you're seeing an increased capacity and is that would data help you show uh, the governments or other um, uh, organizations that you can have additional reductions in emissions and maybe a change in behavior if you were to have more roofs on the road? Uh, <laughs> I think, I mean, for us, of course, um, we're entirely dependent on, on the infrastructure. And uh, one of the um, uh, main attributes that passengers are looking for when, when they are looking for our type of services is what's the punctuality of the services that we're offering. And that is absolutely key. And that is entirely, being on the road is entirely dependent on, on the road network. And that's where I think it's a bit hit and miss. There's, uh, there's definitely periods where we're seeing that road works typically, they, they, uh, they, they create congestion and, and then we're not able to deliver, uh, our services in, in a punctual way. And unfortunately that kind of spins the problem further because then people don't trust us to deliver on punctuality and then they take the car instead which then creates even more congestion and then it kind of becomes a negative spiral i think something that has been in in the uk many years ago and i think we should kind of explore again is, is having coach lanes on on the highways because that can kind of rather than creating this negative spiral can start creating a positive spiral with coach being able to provide better punctuality and then more people move into it, congestion becomes less and, and we can use that. Just to elaborate on that in terms of infrastructure. So we discussed a lot about the need to support more the charging infrastructure. It was one point on the road infrastructure. I mean, if people are not using, using public transport, but more using their car or uh, it, it's not because there is no offer. It's just because where you are in the middle of nowhere in the country. Clearly, uh, there, we, uh, there is no point to have huge public transport. So there is, uh, and it, it will not change. It will be difficult to change. Where we can improve is in the cities or in the large uh, urban areas. And here, clearly, we, 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 we need more support from the, from the government on infrastructure. For example, all the park and ride solution to allow more multimodal uh, transport, uh, to, to allow also, as you said, priority scheme for public transport solutions for or coaches on the highways uh, so that we can transfer transfer the, the the people from cars to public transport and the good thing of that is when you are using more your asset because you're, you have a higher speed uh, clearly uh, it's like easyjet or Ryanair it's like a low cost your asset is more utilized you have more revenue and so you have a business case so there are a lot of things that government can do without uh, without spending money uh, but just by uh, influencing uh, the stakeholders, influencing the infrastructure and, and supporting at the end the, the public transport operators. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, sorry. Yeah, it's probably a couple of points when it's coming on. There's, um, I think it's a fantastic point you're making around. It, it has to be easier. And uh, so we, the other point was around how do we learn from some of the, the passenger car is probably ahead of trucks. Well, it's for sure. It's ahead of trucks, ahead of buses. And there's been lots of learning in that space that we could probably apply to bigger transport. But it does come back to it has to be either easier or cheaper or both um, for, a, for a, a consumer to make the switch generally. 
I think you've got, uh, you're kind of asking people in this room, or the, maybe the people in this room would actually adopt a, maybe a bit of inconvenience in their life because they know it's doing the right thing. But I don't think generally the, the public will do that. It has to be easier or it has to be cheaper or, they, or that it won't happen, sadly. Um, the other point I wanted to just bring on was the technology. So I think this is where, I, slightly geekly, but I think it's really exciting of where the space is going and how much innovation and uh, small companies and some of them in the room today that are building on uh, almost a microcosm of building different techs that can work. So you were talking about charging overnight. Um, we've had out uh, the 130 vehicles on a, the passenger cars and Nissan Leafs on a vehicle to grid trial. They've been out for coming out to three years now. So these cars, um, they, they can discharge at any time, um, but they primarily discharge during the day and they charge overnight. They do all sorts of different things and they're controlled by an app. Um, and ultimately the driver puts trust in saying, I need to leave at 7 a.m. and I need 80% of charge. And the rest of it is left to the tech. Uh, and it runs on various algorithms. Actually, there's some AI in there that sits in the background as well that will learn what does the driver need, but what's the grid doing, most importantly. But that's on a, compared to some of the batteries that you guys are talking about on the speed, that's a small space. It still has its DNO challenges. Uh, every single vehicle to grid connection needs DNO approval, um, and that's got a backline, a backlog, sorry. Um, but the learnings you can take from that are huge. The next question that I always get asked of these sorts of things is, what about the battery? How does it impact the battery? Um, so I thought I'd jump ahead and answer that one. Um, we've done a, the test that we've done so far. So we said they're all leafs because it's a technology. Um, there's minimal impact to the battery. So in the, the kind of Nissan test on the batteries, there's very little. In what impacts the battery more is lots of rapid charging. So if you only rapid charge or primarily rapid charge a car or a battery, that's where it impacts. Because vehicle to grid is slowly taking it in and out, actually it, it quite, it likes it. It's a good way of decharging and recharging the battery. Um, so my point being, how do we take the tech and learning in that small space and take it to the bigger vehicles, I think is fascinating and all the many other, uh, springing up it's using the tech will help us make that change. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um, incredible panel, uh, lots of discussions. I think the takeaways here is really that we can have uh, mini panels with uh, other people coming through to actually action some of these points. Um, I think the key points today has really been about the challenging uh, coming through around technology and new innovations. There is a lot out there, but the thing is around piecing, having the big picture and see where it connects. Public pi um, private engagement needs to be tighter. We need to have and see that they are the ones that are putting incentives or restrictions in place. They need to fundamentally understand different business models, whether it comes to different forms of transportation and the passenger shared mobility. There's not just trains or planes. Um, the the um, implication on the tax duty that happened around uh, more flights as opposed to bus routes could come through as one example. Um, and then the final one is then funding this, that the capital is available on the private side. There's a lot of capital out there, in the, even in this environment. What is having to do is having the contracts with the data to back to reduce the risk to allow these innovations to come through. Um, I think a final comment around uh, um, in terms of panel is key collaboration you would like to see in the next three to five years. Mike, start Gosh, off. Um, key collaboration. I, I, I think there is a, there is, again, the word ecosystem used a bit too much. So apologies for that term, team. But I think it isn't a zero-sum game. It's not one winner takes it all, right? It's going to require customers, um, consumers to actually say yes, but customers of, of large fleets to say, I'm going to take a little bit more risk. It's going to require the operational team 
that works there to decide, actually, I'm going to change my pattern to allow this to occur and facilitate it. It's going to require OEMs to provide product at the right cost structure that can do bi-directional charging, as you just talked about, but also take a risk on the residual value of the battery, which is one consideration set. It's going to require infrastructure partners who are going to have to say, okay, I'm buying into this long-term infrastructure play and I'm taking my share of it. And it's going to require some governmental help to, to bring that together. So, uh, you know, and you could add in energy partners, DNO partners, grid partners, et cetera. But that's the one thing I'd say. You're, you, the ability to come together as a team will drive this change, right? You'll look back 20 years back uh, in the end in 2014 and go, oh, it was obvious, right? But it isn't obvious right now. And I think it needs those people to step up and take a bit of that uh, initiative. I actually don't think the risks are that high. Yeah, I think the risks are greater if you believe in climate change, if you believe in the three-degree scenario, et cetera, that could happen. I think the risks are the opposite. And I think it's up to us and others around. To actually, um, Most of the people who are here probably believe in it, right? The point is, how do you get that across the wider landscape? Yeah. We're going all the way down. Um, my, my comments are probably similar. I think I'd, I'd end on the, the exciting tech entrepreneurship we're seeing, um, those startup SMEs, how we can balance the intellectual power of those and make sure we can harness that alongside kind of government not slowing us down so and it's kind of build on what mike's saying really those two working together i think the word you use is harness how do we harness that and don't don't slow down that innovation because it's coming and that that's what that's what will make this great i want all that access to finance that mike and yourself are talking mm. about firstly danielle um i'd like to see a lot more kind of from my side of the, with the fire, fire and specialists, more of those vehicles, they're coming, but I'd like to see them more at scale so we then can understand the pinch points and some of the challenges that we need to overcome. And then in terms of the infrastructure side, I already talked about more information and support coming from DNOs and government. But the one I'd like to pull out as well is what about public charging for heavier vehicles and the challenges, all the challenges around that in terms of the access points that... The reserve bays, there's no reserve bays because it's a numbers game and, and, and you know, we can't literally fill, fill, fill these in, but are we going to need to explore them? And if so, how? Thank you. From our side, um, we have made a commitment to the science-based target initiative, which is kind of the golden standard for measuring um, uh, emissions for corporates. And we've set a target that over the next 10 years, we're going to transform our fleets to support the Paris Accord. And then what are the partnerships that we need in order to be able to deliver on that? That is initially the OEMs. We need the technology. We are working together with them. We're contributing from our side, but that's the first step. And, and that can be global solutions. Then we need to work with governments in each country to be able to build the infrastructure that's there. And then lastly, it would be also the, the fuel providers, uh, the, the shells, the BPs, in order to make sure that that fuel is available where, where we will need it. So I will not choose one specific uh, partnership we need, but clearly we need to be more collaborative with the infrastructure provider to have more infrastructure, energy provider to have also green energy, uh, with the OEMs to have the right technologies, with all the tech startups, to work on our data to be smarter uh, of course the operators to to, to uh, deliver uh, more performance all the financing world very important to finance all those new assets governments to give the right incentives uh, to give the right also grants if necessary to accelerate and finally passengers citizens each of us customers 
to really uh, accelerate this transition. Thank you. Um, you've heard it here, an unprecedented level of cross-industry collaboration globally to get to net zero emissions. Thank you all for joining and thank you to our speakers. To register your interest in attending, exhibiting, sponsoring, or speaking at Innovation Zero 2024, please go to www.innovationzero.com. We look forward to meeting you at Olympia in London on the 30th of April and the 1st of May 2024.